See Hollywood's biggest stars Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Margot Robbie in Quentin Tarantino's Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Time Magazine says DiCaprio and Pitt are marvelous together, now with over 20 minutes of additional scenes and exclusive access to the set. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, watch it now on digital, rated R. tie-dye was an activity. He can't throw and he can't field, but what can he do? Right now I'm just admiring my own gallantry for eating it the way you've prepared it. What was Mr. Zuckerberg's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. It's his first day on Wall Street. Give him time. You love them and they know it and they love you and you know it, but it's a party. What was Sean Parker's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. What was Peter Thiel's ownership share diluted down to? It wasn't. And what was your ownership share diluted down to? 0.03%. With a common denominator. Cut to 10 years later. Like how 10 years ago you were in first grade, and now we cut to. I'm Sean Fennessy. I'm Amanda Dobbins. And this is The Big Picture, a conversation show about the greatest movies of the past 3,650 days. A little format change to the Oscar show this week. We're putting stock up, stock down, and the big race on hiatus until next week. And if you want to hear about Frozen 2 or more about Knives Out or the early word on Sam Mendes 1917, tune in on Monday. Today is all about The Big Picture's Big Picture, and that, of course, is our collective ranking of the best movies of the decade. Joining Amanda and me is, of course... The big homie, Chris Ryan. What's up, guys? The pod uncle. How are you? I feel like I've almost known you guys for, well, I've known you definitely for the decade. I've almost known you. Yeah, 2013, 12, yeah, 11. Yeah, it was 11. Yeah. So we're almost there. Yeah. Well, did you guys first bond over movies? Was that your Was that your introduction? Because that was the introduction I had to Amanda Dodd. I don't think so. I think you you came late to me as a moviegoer. Yeah, first we were It was we purely were social. At, yeah, at media <laughs> holiday parties. That's right. And then, and, but it's true that Sean and I met at um, after the screening of Avengers. Like, we had met before, but that was the first time we really talked. First time I ever saw Thanos was followed quickly by having a drink with you for the first is time. Is Thanos in that movie? He certainly is. That's he appears at the end in the bumper. You remember? I know. <laughs> I really don't. Okay. But, but I hadn't quite the figured out the CGI yet on that one, right? Uh, he he looks a little bit different. It's just he like does. Josh Brolin wearing a lot of makeup. Guys, we're going to talk about the best movies of the decade. How, ma- how many movies does Thanos appear in on your list? Nine. Nine? Yeah. That's wow. pretty good. Yeah. I don't think he, Thanos appears in nine so movies. so good in shoplifting. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what do you, what does this decade in movies mean to you? How did, you know, obviously the three of us have spent more time thinking, writing, podcasting about the medium in that time. But when you think of the 2010s and movies, what do you think of? Chris, why don't you? Gosh, take it away. Uh, well, I think that in a lot of ways, it is about technology. So not only in terms of the, the differing ways that films are being made now in terms of digital cameras becoming more and more the norm and uh, the way that films are being made with digital cameras changing, like what you're allowed to do on set, how many takes you can get, what you can, where you can go with a camera and not needing a setup like that. But I think for me, like this list was a lot about, um, it wound up being very American. And it wound up being very much about where America was, how it got where it is, and where it is now. 
And I, I didn't expect that to be the case at all. Also, where it might go in the future. And I, I didn't expect that to be the case. So in some ways, I, I was really gratified by looking at my list, and I'm sure your guys' list, and seeing it tell like a real story outside of just like, here's where the industry went. And here's where, here's where like superhero franchises are. And here's where this like shared universe gets us. It was like a real like, oh, wow, these movies still have a lot to say about what it means to be a person. Amanda, what about for you? I had a similar experience. There, there are some, not even political, but sociological mm-hmm. and kind of what's happening in the decade themes definitely running through my movies as well. I was surprised both in terms of the nature of the last 10 years, so that's recency bias, and also just my personal nature, that there is a, a thread of, I don't want to say optimism, but like wonder and hope mm-hmm. in these movies. Apparently, that's what I gravitated no towards. No kidding. It's a real Obama-era list, I okay. got to say. Okay. <laughs> so, you know, and you have to think that we are spanning two pretty distinct eras, both in uh, American ideology and experience and also in movie making. When making this list. And I do find it is, there's nothing in the middle for my list, which is really interesting. So, but yeah, I, I, you'll see. I think, I guess ultimately that the movies are still a place where I go to feel something larger than myself, Mm -hmm. especially as in this decade, TV has proliferated and there is so much to watch and you can find something so specific to your interest on television, which is great. I love it. Shout out the bold type. But, you know, at the movies you go to experience a collective vision or something outside what you would normally seek out. And I think in in some ways, my list re- reflects that. It's such an interesting compromise act because you're basically trying to make some sort of agreement between personal taste and collective greatness, like a collective acknowledgement of greatness. Mm-hmm. I actually found this list, it was very easy to make a huge long list. And then you start getting into like, what is it that makes a movie better than another movie, which is, I think, an incredibly personal decision, you know? And I think some of this has been a little bit um, warped by doing a bunch of rewatchables over the last year, where you kind of get into more about what's the long-term entertainment value of of a piece of filmmaking rather than whether it was intellectually stimulating or artistically breathtaking or demanding in that first viewing that you had versus... I will just, I know that this movie is going to be a part of my life for the next few decades, you know? So with that in mind, do you, do you guys have one sort of honorable mention that maybe doesn't totally fit, doesn't really have a place on the list for you, but does the thing that Chris is describing, which is it kind of exists outside of the rewatchability, it it exists outside of the like prestige list making galaxy brain that we sometimes have to have to do this but one that you're just like I just like this movie it didn't find a place on my top 10 but I really want to give it a quick shout out I have so many I mean yeah. I, I do have some of the prestige ones I my list as we will discover quite quickly was real gut check I, I wrote the 10 movies that came to me and I, you know I tried to apply some editor stuff after the fact but I don't have a lot of like the truly like the great consensus movies of the decade. I'm going to go ahead and say right here, and I, f- I feel guilty about it, but Moonlight is not on my list. It's and not I on mine either. Moonlight is one of the greatest achievements of the past decade mm-hmm. or the past, I don't know, my lifetime in cinema. I, I believe that. And part of it is just because Moonlight has been on a lot of lists and I was trying to be a bit more idiosyncratic and a little more expression of um, my tastes and also just, you know, make it interesting. But that's one that I have on on the other side of the spectrum. I have Creed on my honorable mentions. Mm-hmm. That was Creed's in the mix. on my list. 
loved Creed. I I saw Creed alone in the 34th Street Theater in New York and just started (laughs) crying as soon as that theme song comes up at the end. I was moved. That was great. And that's sort of uh, emblematic. You go to the movies and, and you get swept up in something experience for me. CR. There were movies that I felt like were representative of the work of uh, either an actor, actress, director that I felt like ultimately were my favorite movie by that person from the decade, but weren't one of my favorite movies of the decade. So something like Haywire, directed by Steven Soderbergh, which I adore, have watched five or six times over the last 10 years, but honestly couldn't put in my top 10. Uh, also, there's a couple of genre movies like It Follows or Green Room or even Get Out that I felt like just didn't quite make it into the top 10. My list is, I will say, idiosyncratic to myself as all of these things are, but it's a little bit more consumed with the self and my idea of what an honest hero is in a movie. I realize that a lot of the figures that the, that my movies are obsessed with are these like singularly driven, weird, sometimes um, hopelessly out of control of their self. Mm-hmm. And I sense that in it, sort of in the mechanics of what I relate to in movies, which is very unhealthy, I think, in a lot of ways. But it also feels like a little bit of a, a testimony to what the decade was about. The de- decade was about like ruthlessly ambitious people rising to power, really without any any cuffs on, you know, just like doing whatever they wanted to do because they could. And even though you're right that the first half of the decade is very much Obama time and has felt very hopeful, the second half of the decade has been pretty challenging, mm-hmm. pretty pretty distraught, pretty much like a reckoning for mm-hmm. what we had in the first half. And so by chance, I have almost one movie from every single year of the decade. Very similar to you. I just wrote down the 10 movies that I thought of and worked from there. And I probably removed one thing or added in one thing here and there. But for the most part, this is what I think of when I think of the last 10 years. Too quick. That makes sense though. If it's the best movie of a year, it's already like in that rarefied era for you. So it would be hard to not, it would have to be an extraordinary other movie year for the second or third best movie. I'm speaking specifically from you. Mm -hmm. If it's like the third best movie of 2012 is better than the best movie of 2017. I've got two from 2013 and and nothing from, from 2011. I have between 2011 and 2013 is five or six of my list. Interesting. Hmm. I, I don't know. Do you know any math, Chris, on yours? Uh, <laughs> I got two from 12. I, it's, pretty, it's pretty spread out for me. Two quick honorable mentions for me. I really wanted to put Stories We Tell and It's Such a Beautiful Day on my list. Um, it's Such a Beautiful Day is an animated movie by this guy, Don Hertzfeld. It's not technically a movie. It's three short films strung together. I really love his movies. That They're all about like <laughs> the dread of the future and pain. I would recommend you check them out if you have free time or willing to watch stick figures for 90 minutes and (laughs) want to have your mind blown. I think it's absolutely amazing movie. Stories we tell Sarah Polly's sort of documentary about her parents' past. Genius movie. Um, But yeah, I mean, those movies also, I think, kind of fit into the theme of like the past and reckoning Mm -hmm. with the future. Uh, Should we do our list? Yeah, let's get into it. Amanda, you want to start with number 10? Sure. Let's let's just start this with something ridiculous. My number 10 is the film Fast Five from 2011. Because <laughs> here I am. Good Not, pick. I'm a woman of the people, as everyone knows. No, listen, I I really do believe, like I said, this was a bit of like a, a gut check, writing down like memorable experiences watching movies. And I do also believe that a list like this actually has to engage with cinema and movies as a popular entertainment and things that people see. I do not have any Marvel on my list, but I do have Fast Five because at the end of the day, it is just a dumb, amazing movie 
where people are dragging a safe through <laughs> Rio and you're just like, what is happening? Yeah. And I do think it's a relic of another era. There is that like Obama era optimism and inclusivity and we're all a family and we're doing this together that kind of pushes the movie and this franchise. And it's obviously also kind of a flex moment in the franchise because it's when The Rock joins and becomes much larger. But I don't think I had seen a Fast and the Furious movie before some friends took me to this. And I remember just sitting in the theater being like, yo, they're really doing this. They're just really <laughs> driving a safe through the damn city and it just keeps going. And it's exciting and propulsive and loud and stupid and kind of transcendent. It's kind of a funny pick because of all of the big franchises in the entire movie world, and Chris and I are susceptible to a lot of them. I'm probably susceptible to most of them. That's the one that I think has never really touched one. us. Yeah, I think we, I've seen like three of them. And then the one, like well, I saw one with Kurt Russell and I was like, this can't be real. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but it is. Like, you're just like, am I watching this? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I don't dislike them. I like them. I just, I've never gotten obsessed with them. And Fast Five is kind of universally understood. But you as, and I are not coming best. from that from a perspective of being like, we're too good for this. Like, no, I no. definitely yeah, have yeah. seen Den of Thieves five times. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, don't, don't worry about it. Like, I love action franchises. <laughs> yeah. It's just for whatever reason, this one, which pretty much barring your sort of intergalactic comic book universes, like mm -hmm. has emerged as the franchise of the 2010s. Um, your case is very strong. Thank it you. is like an amazing set piece in that movie with the safe. That's it's damn good stuff. Yeah. Um, Chris, what's number 10 for you? Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. All right. Yeah. This is also on my list. So this is I, probably so low because it's so, so low. Recent. Well, it's on 10. I, I think it, I think it has the potential to rise up. Ah. You know what I mean? If in on further viewings, but it's easily far and away the best movie of this year. Uh, I think it's the best Tarantino movie from this decade. It features uh, two of my favorite performances from uh, the decade in Brad Pitt and DiCaprio. And Lena Dunham. And Lena Dunham. Yeah. I'm su just super into, um, yeah. <laughs> to Scoot McNary's brief, brief appearance. And um, I felt like it was a good way to kick off the list because it's about being obsessed with movies in a lot of ways. So I just wanted to throw that out there to begin with. We've talked so much about once Upon a Time in Hollywood, I don't have to belabor it too much, I don't think. I'll be circling back to it as we continue to go down the list. My number 10 is Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse. You may have heard of this movie if you've ever listened to this podcast. Um, I think it's a nice placeholder for two different categories. One, comic book movies completely taking over mm -hmm. the entire genre of filmmaking. <laughs> two, animated movies which have had a fascinating 10 years. And if one thing dominated, if, if comic book movies dominated the decade, Animated movies secretly kind of run Hollywood and keep the lights on. And it's something that is a little bit of an, uh, an undiscussed aspect of it. Obviously, I know you guys are not huge animated movie fans. But I've seen this movie. This movie, I think, does something that most animated movies don't do, which is it really pushes the medium forward in a major way. The animation style is incredible. The storytelling is great. It is both, it gives you both the sort of self-knowing, sarcastic meta aspect of Deadpool, but it also gives you the kind of like sincere, uplifting storytelling that is in the best of Spider-Man stories. I think it's like an absolutely amazing movie. It holds up really well. We revisited it earlier this year. I'm really glad you appreciated it. That was very meaningful. And anyone who hasn't seen it, I would recommend you watch it. Number nine. Magic Mike. 
from 2012. So I, it, it's interesting. Another way that I was putting this list together is that I was definitely not counter-programming, but there were certain things that I thought I knew that both of you would do. And like Chris, Sicario, Day of the Soldado? Or? No, well... <laughs> is I, that I'm, not on your list? I was gonna say, if Sicario is not on your list, I'm going to be surprised. But also, I, I really thought Haywire was going to be on your list. Yeah. Because I know that that is a, a big movie for you. And, you know, it's also Soderbergh exploring the physique mm-hmm. in different ways. Um, Magic Mike has a bit more uh, narrative structure to it. Or- Haywire is more like, I like it when ladies run. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, Magic Mike is like, I like it when Channing Tatum dances. Yeah. <laughs> but so does everyone. I mean, you know, you kind of forget in 2012 what a phenomenon this was. And kind of looking back on it, it anticipates a lot of the the movie existing on the internet or outside yeah. of the actual experience of watching the movie and like the concept of Magic Mike has really lived on. But, you know, it anticipates a lot of things. It's a story about some guys in Florida who are just trying to do the best that they can uh, like a long time, yeah. but, you know, and that is kind of, it's before the big short, I believe. And it's before kind of the Florida trilogy that is now um, overtaking independent cinema. And I also think it, you know, it finds movie stars. It brings you the reconnaissance. It's, it, essentially like a modern day musical in a lot of ways where they just stop to let Channing Datum be amazing. Cody Horn Apex Mountain. Yeah. I I was gonna offer you guys the opportunity to talk about Cody Horn. Justice I know that for Cody performance Horn. Performance means a lot to you. It's really it's still I astonishing on rewatch. Very special actress. Yeah. That's my take. That is true. It's an extraordinary and memorable performance. <laughs> <laughs> which is true of pretty much everyone in this movie. Sure. Yes. There we go. Magic Mike. I love Magic Mike. I don't even know if I've got Magic Mike on my top 100 list I've got going, but I do love it. It's a, I don't have a Soderbergh movie on my top 10, which on the one hand, I kind of feel bad about. On the other hand, it's like, it's hard to pick. It's just hard to pick. To your point about Haywire, it's just very difficult to put your finger on, well, what is, what yeah, is the, his the quintessential statement? Yeah, yeah. The first season, yeah, exactly. I don't know. What about you, Chris? Number nine. The Master. This is also on my list. Yeah. Um, I will, we can save the actual description and talking about the master uh, for when it comes up for you. I would just say that one of the uh, delights of the decade has been the ceremony around going to see PTA movies when they come out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like I saw the master. I think you and I went to Musso and Frank beforehand and John Bryan was in the restaurant like and we went down there. I think we saw like a 10 p.m. screening. And got out at like, you know. I believe it was midnight. It was, yeah. It was a midnight I think it was a screening. midnight. This was before they were starting to show these movies at 7 p.m. on Thursday nights. Right. So, so it was a Thursday night at midnight. So we got out around like 2.30 in the morning or yes. whatever. And just kind of like stalked home. I think I saw it like a couple days later in the theater. I still don't understand it. It's still one of the most <laughs> haunting movies I've ever seen. There's a lot in there that I think going forward winds up like saying a lot about like where we are. But to me, it's also like the uh, resonance it's taken on, unfortunately, because of uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman's passing uh, as being kind of a testament to his genius. And also just like it has the atmosphere of one of those late 70s movies that you read about in books where you're like, man, the making of the deer hunter is just like all these people being involved. It just feels like a bunch of people like kind of at their absolute peaks. And it's it's just one of the most um, beguiling movies I've ever seen. Very special film. My number nine is OJ Made in America. Let me ask you guys a question. Do you consider this a movie? Uh, I think it's okay to consider, because of its documentariness or the fact that it's a 10-hour TV show? The fact that it's a, <laughs> well, I wouldn't call it a 10-hour we TV show. Right. Um, 
but it is a it is a ten hour seven hour series yeah. essentially. But it is operating under the same auspices that films operate under. You know, the sort of the arc of the story, the way that it's told. It's a traditional documentary, just elongated into multiple parts. But I think you know the the Academy changed their rules so that movies like this can no longer. Like, compete. would you consider the Vietnam War to be a movie? I would. Okay, I would. I think of the Ken Burns series as films. Okay. Um, I wouldn't have put it in my top 10, so it's not really like a parliamentary movie. The Vietnam War? Yeah, I would. No, yeah. you wanted to put baseball in, though. And we said, Chris, that was released 25 years ago. You can't put that in. Um, that was some behind-the-scenes banter that we had earlier. Do you consider it a movie? Well, I was just thinking, I watched it at home. I watched it on my TV, and I consumed it in an episodic way. So, to me, it was a documentary series. But that's really just because how I consumed it. So, that's a that's a helpful way of letting me talk about it. I, w- Chris and I were both working at ESPN at the time, and I had a chance to see the movie before it was released in a theater um, and talk to the filmmakers about, you know, how they put it together and what was, you know, sort of what the process for it was. Ezra Edelman is the director, just an amazing genius documentarian. Um, and it, stru- it struck me as a movie. Sitting in, I said, sitting in a theater for six and a half hours to watch it was a, a highly immersive experience. And it's been talked about over and over again what makes this movie so special. It won the Best Documentary Oscar. It won scads of awards. It's one of the most recognized achievements in documentary filmmaking ever. The thing that sticks with me is it's one of the best movies about the arc of time. A lot of documentaries like the Vietnam War try to capture that. And in some cases they do, but they're often about events or they're about ideas or they're about a sport or the blues. They center themselves around um, themes or objects this movie is certainly about race and, you know, violence and re- our relationship to it. But it's about a person. And it's about what happens to a person when they go inside the machine and how it can damage them badly. It's just an amazing collision of all things that interest me about movies and movie making. So that's my number nine, OJ Made in America. Number eight. This is a great segue from a movie that's about the arc of time mm-hmm. to a movie that posits that time is possibly not an arc which is Arrival, which is my number eight. Um, I rewatched Arrival last night and found myself as moved as I did the first two or maybe three times. I can't remember that I saw it in theaters. I Listeners will know I'm not a huge sci-fi person. And I also don't characteristically find myself responding to uh, deeply philosophical or um, really movies about crises of faith or crises of spirituality. And this, to me, is a a movie about faith and wonder and believing in something larger. And I find myself absolutely rocked by it. I mean, you know, it's a beautifully shot by Bradford Young and obviously directed by Denis Villeneuve and based on a great Ted Chiang short story. The ideas are all there, but it's kind of, I couldn't tell you why this movie and something else. Sometimes the alchemy just kind of works and you find yourself moved by something. You're going full genre. This I, is amazing. I, well, here I am. I like to go to the movies and have fun. <laughs> That's a good one. Where is it on your list? Uh, it's at number four. Is it? Yeah. Oh, I didn't even think it would be. Yeah. And, and like you, I also, I saw it like two or three times in the theaters the year it came out uh, back in 16. And I've seen it recently. And I, I was as rocked by it as I was that when I first saw it in the theater. He's my favorite director of the decade. And I think that this might be his best movie. Man, I should revisit it, yeah. huh? Yeah. Sounds like I fucked up. Let me look at my long list and see if I've got it on here. It's amazing. I do. Also, it's at 75. Oh, 75. Oh, Jesus. Wow. Perhaps okay. that's too high. <laughs> no, you know what it is? It's like, I think it's the best that Hollywood can do. Yeah. I think it's like Ooh. two really wow. great movie stars. It's spectacle, but hu- like humanity. And I actually do think that the twist works. And I think that the ending is maybe one of the most moving endings I've ever come across. 
I totally agree. And, you know, it has that thing of you want to know what's going to happen. It is, I reread the Manola Dargis review and she says it sometimes it's like pretty straight for mm-hmm. a movie that is about how time is a, a flat circle, I guess, or, but, and for kind of metaphysical concepts, but it really just is kind of like, now we got to go back up in the thing, but that it manages to walk the line between genre and something really profound is, I think, what what speaks to me about it. It's a great one. Number eight, Chris. Mining the Gap. All right. Uh, it's Bing Lu's documentary from last year about a bunch of kids, a bunch of skater kids growing up in Illinois. Uh, and the, again, like kind of repeating a theme, but the cycle of... Not violence per se, but kind of the cycle of of uh, somewhat poverty, somewhat just like hard times in America, how impossible it is to get out of your circumstances in this country, and is also just like one of the most affecting character character portraits you can see. You feel like, you know, I, I think that I, I talk a lot about this on The Watch because we deal with, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of fictional characters a year when we're talking about all these shows and we have all these different, do I like this person or do I believe this person or do I want to spend time with this person? And character is really uh, such a difficult thing to describe, like whether or not there's a good character or an interesting character. And I I feel like I can safely say in this doc, you just feel like you know these people. Mm-hmm. And in mm-hmm. some ways, that's the best achievement of the of the film. I know you feel really strongly about it too. I do. I didn't put it on my list. Um, n- not not for a good reason. It's it's an amazing movie. It was one of my one or two or three favorite movies of the year last year. I talked about it incessantly. It's um it's just an unusual circumstance to get that level of intimacy over that level of time with people. And it's very carefully orchestrated the way that it's cut together and the way that the reveals happen. And it's not done in a way that is cynical. It's very sincere and and empathetic. It's not trying to gotcha, even though there are a lot of kind of like shocking, emotionally disruptive moments in the movie. Um, and it just seems really, really sincere. And it's funny, I'm looking at my list and it's kind of like half sincere and half engineered. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's good when a movie is just exactly what it means to be. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. when I talked to to Bing Lu about it, you could tell just based on his disposition, the kind of guy that he is, that there's not a lot of, you know, effrontery or effacement going it's on. It's also kind of cool to, you know, we follow so much about like, oh, this director was looking at this project and then they moved on and this person, this movie could only have been told by him. Yes. Like it's, it's his perspective, it's his experience, it's his life, it's his friends, it's his... It's his way of shooting skateboarding and the way in which the skateboarding is this escape for these guys. So, uh, yeah, if you haven't seen it, it's on Hulu, I think, still, I would mm-hmm. imagine. And I can't recommend it higher, more highly. My number eight is Mad Max Fury Road. It's my number seven. Speaking of movies that can only be made by the person who made them. Um, this is a good stand-in for why sequels don't have to be bad. I think we hear sequels and we think that they ha- are destroying modern movies. We think that they are tearing down creativity. George Miller waited decades to make a fourth movie. He tried very hard over a long period of time. The actual physical production of this movie started years before its release in 2015. And it isn't just an absolute symphony. It's. Uh, <laughs> I think you could make an argument that this is the best made movie of the decade. It's it's right there for sure. I mean, it is similarly holds up amazingly well if you watch it to this moment. It feels like the kind of movie that, you know when you watch Casablanca sometimes and you're like, this still works perfect. Mm-hmm. Like it just it has mm-hmm. not that nothing feels dated, nothing feels overworn. It's kind of like, it's it's classicism, despite the fact that this is a movie that features like a a, a demon playing guitar and like people on <laughs> yeah. flying spikes. Nicholas Holt just uh, being like, I'm a blood boy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Even despite all of those weird storytelling trappings, 
just a kick-ass, relentless, exciting action movie that also has ideas in it if you want, if you choose to explore them. If you choose to see it as an ecological tale, you can. If you choose to see it as a story about feminism, you can. If you choose to see it as a story about Tom Hardy not knowing how to speak, you can. When it's working, when it like goes to the 11th level, it is hair-raising. And so it's number eight. It does seem like it's also the critical consensus. It's Every the, single yeah. list that I've read yeah. is yeah. on it. It's also the the one that a lot of filmmakers are like, that's the one. Yeah. yeah. That's like, if you want to know how to edit a scene and understand space and shoot action, it's that's it. A lot of times when we hear a movie took three or four years to complete, we think that it's a disaster. I wonder if more movies... Now, this is not necessarily financially financially reasonable, but should more movies start in 2019 and be wrapped in 2023? And will we just get better movies? I mean, I'm a full believer that the reason that movies are better than TV is because people are spending more time and energy and money and resources For on sure. one thing. It's like the, they're spending more time instead of me having to spend more time watching, like, you know, episode six because you guys didn't really know what was going on right. and you had to fill two more hours before you got to the thing. So I agree with you. It might also drive everyone insane. It, it seems like a pretty yeah. involved process. Yes. And I would like to keep the directors that we have rather than, you know, miring them in in intensity for four years at a time. Yeah, at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves on this show, I, I learned that 1917 began shooting in April and, and wrapped in November, which is just in, insane when you see that movie. Yeah. But So it's not true in all cases, but I, I agree with you mm-hmm. that more time and effort, look at the Irishman, you know, more time and effort into these films often produces better results because things are not being hacked together at the last minute. I think that's also true of life, but that's just me. <laughs> I'm also the person who put Fast Five on her list instead of Mad Max Fury Road, so whatever. <laughs> number seven. Uh, my number seven is Francis Ha. That is also my number seven. Oh, really? Oh, yes. that's nice. Yes. Uh, I think this is a personal pick. I mean, you know, Noah Baumbach is uh, one of my favorite directors. Uh, Greta Gerwig is incredibly important to me, and this is her introduction on the on the main stage, if you will. She co-wrote the script and obviously stars in it. Um, this is a top five, three, one New York movie for me, <laughs> mm-hmm. which has a lot to do with the fact that I uh, was Francis Ha's age at the time this was released and also living in New York. And I think, you know, we were talking about optimism and that my list being a little more hopeful than I expected. And this is the most hopeful Baumbach movie. It's someone... Uh, breaking through and seeing the world in a different way. And I felt like I got to access that when I watched this movie and it, it means a lot to me. It's a wonderful movie. Couldn't have said it better myself. I don't have anything to add. Okay. I yeah. just, I think it's completely touching and, and uh, important to movies me personally. Yeah. Um, Chris, number seven. Mad Max is seven. And so, and Francis Ha is like your Francis Mayer. Oh, great. Yes. Okay. So We're six, so efficient right here. This is going to be extra efficient, efficient because my number six is Skyfall. And we have an entire podcast <laughs> that you can listen to about why Skyfall is, you know, this is this is my franchise. I'm, I mean, I, I know I picked Fast Five. Fast Five is more like dumb action movie. And this is my franchise. Movies can make literally a billion dollars and also have ideas and be excellent. Yep. And I love this movie. It appears I don't have Skyfall in my top 100. Well, we don't. Do you have Casino Royale in there? I don't. For all the Casino Royale truthers in our mentions? You want to just carve out 30 seconds to speak to the Casino Royale truthers? I hear you. Your voices matter. Uh, I I think that you guys have plenty of space on the internet Mm -hmm. to express yourselves. And 
Uh, and, and you have done so, and, and, we, and that's great. And we love you, and we and love keep shining poker. You know, like, and we love Mad Mads Mickelson. Keep shining. Yeah, yeah. I, I like keep shining. <laughs> shining. <laughs> um, okay, fair enough. Skyfall is a fantastic movie. Check out the rewatchables. Number six, Chris. Drive. Ooh, this is a couple of things. So. First of all, it came out in 2011. I moved to Los Angeles in early t- 2012, but it started visiting here to move here in 2011. And I feel like was a very formative movie in my ideas about what Los Angeles could be, which have all been completely crushed. Uh, <laughs> Isn't that good? Uh, sure. I mean, I, I don't know what you were hoping for, but... but how, how many heads have you stomped out in an elevator? I've tried to... I'm trying to articulate one thing about this movie, and maybe you guys can help me. None, by the way. Okay, No, no heads. Thanks, thanks for clearing uh, that up. This feels like a generationally cool movie, a very but specific to this decade. You know what I mean? I, I think we may have uh, squandered how cool this movie was in the years to come with like TikTok and shit. But there was a moment <laughs> what? where I feel like this movie was like as it was like, oh, like we've turned a page. You know what I mean? This is a new director, Nicholas Winding Ref, and these are new movie stars with Ryan Gosling and Carrie Mulligan. It's a great story. It's so cool. And this, the music, the sort of very Johnny Jewel chromatics, like Glass Candy soundtrack, it felt like something really breathtakingly new, even though the story is obviously just basically a remake of a Walter Hill movie. I don't know necessarily that I have like an overarching theory. This movie is so romantic and so violent and so beautiful and so cool and so rewatchable. And Oscar fucking Isaac is just in it for like eight minutes and amazing. And Albert Brooks and Brian Cranston. And it's just, it's drive. It's fantastic. This is a movie that got kind of memed to death, but is still like slaps. Yeah. It's hard to be an earnest adult man in 2019 and be like, Drive is so cool, dude. Yeah, but what's cool it is, is cool. satin jackets with tigers on them. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I was at some point, is it, is it just that you want the jacket? Do you want us to get you the jacket? No, but do you know what I mean LA? by like, it felt like there was a kind of different dialect being spoken with this, for this movie. I think it was unafraid to be seen as pretentious and slick. You know, that like Refn style is very glossy and it's very iconographic. You know, he's trying to make something that is memorable and could be frozen in time. Mm -hmm. And I think he's gotten punished for that in the years to come. And, you know, uh, Only God Forgives is a personal favorite of Chris and I and is one of the more depraved movies of the last century. Um, It's not on my list here. I wish it were. Maybe one day a a rewatchables of Only God Forgives between just you and I that is never released (laughs) can happen. Um, And I think he's gotten kind of picked over over the years. He released this Amazon show that did not go over super well, even though Chris also loved that. I was just thinking about Chris and my husband texting about that show for like three months. Have you guys finished watching it? Yeah, for sure. Okay, good job. Yeah. I haven't. Um, I love Drive. I've always loved Drive. Yeah. I, it, I, I do personally find it hard to keep a straight face while talking about what makes it so cool. I, that actually was an extraordinary performance by you, just saying like, yeah. there was once a time when men were men. No, it's not when men were men. It's just that I think I was com- we were coming out. I, I think that that was the first time where I felt like, oh, this isn't like movies from three years ago. You know, it's like yeah. you watch a movie and you feel like this is a new voice and a new way of telling this kind of story. And and it's been imitated so much over the last 10 years. I think it's a deeply influential movie for not only in movies, but I think it even had a big impact on like music and fashion and the way people kind of conduct themselves. And there's like a kind of like I, like a kind of paradigm that it, it set up. Right. It's also nothing's cool anymore. And specifically mm. that part of cool. Yeah. Like that type of cool does not exist. Yeah. And and part of it is because it's 
you can't really be earnest and enthusiastic about something and also be cool. Those are like opposed ideas. And we do live in a time where everyone is just really, really passionate about the things that they are passionate about and is just giving you that mm-hmm. with enthusiasm and detail. And or anger. Or anger. That's true. But you're all in on something and that doesn't allow for the detachment that makes something cool in the way that drive is cool. It's funny when you said that it was like, maybe it's a road not traveled for this generation. But to me, it kind of seems like the last gasp of like our our actual generation before the the young children came and gave us TikTok. Yeah. I agree. That's what I thought you were going to say too. When you used the word generationally, I thought you meant the kind of the end of a generation being I guess able I didn't to create see it that this way kind of imagery. Yeah. You guys just showed yeah, us how sorry. old we all are. So <laughs> washed as fuck. Number six, uh, Get Out. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's important. Just a just a brilliant movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Introduction of an important and fascinating and fun new filmmaker. It's really great to have somebody who is so pop and has such a clear idea of his or her own cinematic language, Jordan Peele, kind of checks all the boxes of the cinephile stuff and also all the boxes of, you just want to go out to the movies and have a great time. Um, I, it was exciting just to watch people get excited about us because of what Get Out did to the culture. Um, it feels like one of those classic movies where it's going to be absurd that it didn't win Best Picture 15 years from now. We're going to talk about that for a long time. Just a perfectly orchestrated horror movie that also has a lot to say about society features great performances, has great laugh lines. Mm-hmm. It has like all of the great night out in a movie stuff that you want. And it's, it stands up to re-examination. It actually, it grows richer the more times you watch it. And you can see that there's a lot of meticulousness in the way that he put the movie together. And I think it's emblematic of like a, not quite a changing of the guard of horror, but an indication that, you know, through Blumhouse and through a sort of a sense that social ideas still belong in horror movies that they're coming out of the sort of saw and haunted house generation of horror movies that we were, we could still get something that had kind of a vision of what our society is really like. So get out. Just an incredible testament to like the regenerative power of filmmaking talent. Like where you think like, ah, I've seen it all. There's no Mm -hmm. way I can get scared in a different way. There's no new trick that this guy can pull. And then you realize like, oh, like I, I think the world just went like Technicolor watching this movie. This is one where I felt really bad not having it on my list. And I I kind of went another way in the the horror genre. Surprise. Wow. Um, I know. It's me. I contain multitudes. Genre Dobbins today. I know. But also, but I think it's probably the top five most important films, just mm-hmm. in terms of reinventing the way we think about a genre and also just getting people to respond to it. Yeah. Everyone has seen and understands Get Out, mm-hmm. which is phenomenal that's a good point it went went so immediately from movie to part of like the like the lexicon Mm -hmm. yeah the fabric of culture for sure yeah um amanda number five my number five is phantom thread yes very hard for me to leave this off um and the reason it's on my list is because i I needed a love story on my list and there are not uh very many love stories made this decade for Hmm. a lot of reasons and I, that is a, a, a not even a genre, just like a whole a, a theme in filmmaking that has always been important to me because I'm a human being. And this is the one that stands out. I mean, it obviously also is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson doing a, a costume drama, which is great for me. And it has like a, a great director who has made movies that I recognize as excellent, but maybe don't always hit my particular taste centers, Mm -hmm. kind of going straight to the heart of it and then finding something new in all of, in the types of movies that I've enjoyed for 
for decades. It's his most, it's his tightest movie by far. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. If I was being truly honest with myself, yeah. all three of his movies from this decade would right. be on my list. It's I like, tried to keep one director, only one one entry yeah, from a director. I, I did the same. But The Master, Inherent Vice, and Phantom Thread are three of the six best movie-going experiences I had in the last mm-hmm. 10 years and learned something new about myself and about the way to tell stories. And right. I, he he does like what I had always been waiting for from a director for our generation. And it's exciting that he's... Yeah able to make the kinds of movies that he wants to make. He's mm-hmm. a rare, he's a rare auteur. I think there's like a handful of people, maybe Wes Anderson, Tarantino. There's a very small number of people who get to actually get close to the budgets that they want, mm-hmm. the stars that they want, and still get to tell the stories the way that they want to. Um, Phantom Thread is a perfect movie. Not, not on my list. Chris, number five for you. Speaking of love stories, mm-hmm. Before Midnight. Mm. Uh, is it a love story? I think so. Yes, ultimately. Oh, yeah. But it's like it's marriage story before marriage story. Yeah, it's also like weirdly, and I, I don't mean to make this sound loud, it's like the story of my life. Like I, these movies have come out pretty much mm, parallel yeah. to the place I was in my life when they were released. So I very much like identified with the Ethan Hawke character, Jesse, in the first one and his sort of wanderlust. And the second film, which I think is probably the best one, uh, like articulates those last embers of like real like adventure in your life and real romance and real risk taking that you can really have before you really start hurting other people with your decisions because you have like this family or you have like these responsibilities and then this movie just really reckons with that and one of the things reasons I love this movie is because Jesse's kind of a dick in this movie and I really do feel like of the three of them this is the film that feels most co-authored by Julie Delpy and Ethan Hawke and Richard Richard Linklater but it never feels like it's telling the story from the perspective of one character. It really truly feels like the story of a couple. Um, It's in no ways cinematically that remarkable. It's pretty bougie. It's about this like pretty well-off couple who are having a lovely summer in the Mediterranean, you know, and he's got a writing career and she's, she's tired of sublimating her hopes and dreams to his career. And he's got a wandering eye and it's, it's pretty pedestrian. But it is, you know, a lot of people have put Boyhood in their uh, their top decade list of the decade, and it's kind of like beyond me as to why you wouldn't put Before Midnight. And it's it's a crowning achievement to chronicle this fictional couple over the course of what twenty years or so. I think I feel like it's unfinished. Yeah, that's part of what maybe one of the reasons why I don't think to put these movies in these places is because it is purposefully episodic and the returning to it every, what is it, mm-hmm. like nine years or something like that, that, they return to these characters indicates to me that I don't know the totality of the story. And since I, and yeah, maybe it's because we don't know the totality of our own lives and that's kind of the point of the films, but it, I feel like I'm hanging. I'm, I, and I'm like, I want to know where they're going to be now. Right. And so I don't have the same sense of resolution that something like OJ made in America gives me where it was just like, well, here is what happens with race in America across six and a half hours, you know, there is a kind of, you know, you, you button up your shirt at the end of it. Um, Isn't it more like life though? It is. Yeah, it's, it is. I mean, those movies are almost too much like life for me, which is yeah. why I ultimately, I, 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 
really admire those movies and it gets so uncomfortable it's because like, they aren't. Yeah. Well, but no, like, but I mean, like, I'm not like, hey, man, it's a Wednesday. Let's no. fire up some, <laughs> like, before sunset. You know, you know? Like, I need, like, the rigor of a, a Bombax script sure. and the jokes and the and the playwriting to provide some s- structure around the emotions. Because if you're just, like, putting the emotions out solo, I'm just like, well, this is very uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't even do this in therapy. Uh, and that's kind of my, I remember vividly seeing Before Midnight and just being like, I really have to get out of here. This is really intense. <laughs> this is really intense, which is not for the response that I had, for example, to The Marriage Story. It's less, it's less controlled yeah. and more raw. Well, it's harder because you went from seeing this couple be kind of a platonic ideal for what, like, you know, what you Mm -hmm. imagine for yourself in life to kind of resenting each other. And that's heartbreaking as to why, you know, you spent four hours on screen time and you've imagined 20 years of real lifetime for these people and you've seen them age. And then to watch them just kind of nitpick each other, you're like, fuck, is this what we're all doomed to be? You know, like, yeah, that is the thing that scares me off of it in a lot of ways, both before sunrise and before sunset and with the right kind of interpretation, quite hopefully. Maybe they'll reunite and he'll meet her, you know, back in Europe. And then at the end of Before Sunset, it's sort of like, you know, he's going to miss that plane. Yeah. And at the end of Before Midnight, I'm like, are we all doomed? <laughs> like, are we all doomed to hate each other in perpetuity or le- at best resent each other, as yeah. you said? And that is like a scary proposition. I think they find something new at the end of this movie, though, you know? Detente. Yeah. Um, <laughs> my number five is uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Okay. For many of the reasons that Chris said, I've now seen the movie four times. Um, it is a fascinating portrait of sort of the opposite of what Before Midnight does. Before Midnight is like, here's how it really is. Here's what happens when you get into your 40s and, and life is hard and relationships are not easy and we're all flawed. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is, here's what I wish could have happened and here's why. And here's what I love and here's why I love it. And I'm going to show it to you in Technicolor. And it's just a very spirited and hopeful movie that shouldn't be. It should actually be a movie about the end of a time. Mm-hmm. That, that was the pitch originally. It was like 1969, we're at the dawn of the apocalypse. America is about to go belly up and things are going to be horrible. And it isn't that. And it's, it's somewhat wistful for the 50s and 60s, but I think it's also somewhat wistful for our vision of what was once good, even if it was never actually there. Um, just an amazing filmmaking achievement. And uh, like I'm, master in his in his safest place you know mm-hmm. in Hollywood making his LA movie did you consider putting Django or Hateful on this or would you have if you had the Paul Thomas Anderson amendment um pr- probably not okay I, I think Inglorious Bastards was his 21st century achievement um highest level achievement I have some regrets about not putting the Hateful Eight on my top five murder mysteries list that, that dawned on me yeah that was suggested to me but that that one's tough for me yeah, I, I, I really it, like but it. But it actually would probably match my strict interpretation yeah, right. of a, the yes. stuck in a place. Yeah. yeah, it's a traditionally defined. I, I, I love both of those movies. I, I, I like Django. I love Hateful Eight. Um, but Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is like close to a summation for him. It's like as cl- I think as close as he'll get to Love Letter, and it's very, uh, it's, it's extraordinarily well done. Marvel released a new podcast about the Fantastic Four called Marvels. Based on the graphic novel by Kurt Busiek and Alex Ross, the show is set in New York City and it does an incredible job of immersing you in the real world of the Marvel Universe and the lives of the people who inhabit it. The story takes place as the city braces for its first encounter with Galactus, but it's an audio drama that follows a journalist, student, and photographer's mission to unravel a super-powered conspiracy. 
If you want to give Marvels a shot, just go to stitcherpremium.com and sign up with the code PICTURE. You'll get a free month trial of Stitcher Premium, which will let you listen to Marvels right now. That's stitcherpremium.com with the promo code PICTURE. Thanks. Today's episode of The Big Picture is brought to you by Masterclass. Masterclass lets you learn from the best with exclusive access to online classes taught by masters of their craft. You can learn how to direct a film by watching Martin Scorsese, or you can learn how to play poker by watching the big homie Phil Ivey deal the cards. With over 60 different instructors across tons of categories, there is literally something for everyone. The Masterclass app is accessible on your phone, web, or Apple TV, and each class is broken out into individual video lessons and downloadable materials, which you can explore at your own pace. As I said, I love to play poker, and I love to learn from the very best, so watching Phil Ivey break down which hands to play, how to play them, and how to bet with those hands made my poker game that much stronger. I highly recommend you check out Masterclass. Get unlimited access to every Masterclass. And as a listener of this podcast, you get 15% off the annual all-access pass. Go to masterclass.com slash big picture. That's masterclass.com slash big picture for 15% off of Masterclass. Number four. And number four is Moneyball. I just, I, you know, I, I feel like Sean and I did an entire podcast about Brad Pitt that was just us screaming, Moneyball! <laughs> uh, I, part of it is how watchable it is, and part of it is that it takes things that I don't care about, including sports and spreadsheets, and turns it into, well, I don't. <laughs> You're laughing, but I don't care. I put it on the record. I do not care about sports and spreadsheets. I think The Ringer has made you care about both, but that's a whole other she, story. But she put just put a movie at number four that, hinges on Ricardo Rincon getting treated. Right. <laughs> like, like, that's, and, I, like, I, and it's just because... What can't Moneyball do? Right, exactly. <laughs> you have an action movie, a science fiction movie, yeah. a sports yeah. movie. Yes. I am, I, like I said, Den I contain multitudes. Yeah. Like, this is very rude. <laughs> Sorry that I am just, you know... Taking all that cinema has Ain't to it offer. Cool it's me and Martin Scorsese, okay? <laughs> just just going to see things and having a personal connection. That's what I look for at the end of the day. Um, but anyway, I it is, makes is, is Doctor Strange on your list? No, I still have never <laughs> seen Doctor Strange. I really don't know what's happening in that movie. And when they showed up in Endgame or whatever, I was like, what is happening? <laughs> uh, who is that? <laughs> anyway, Moneyball. About makes you just really invested in things that you don't care about. And also, quite frankly, like the concept of moneyballing something has become larger than the movie, sure. which is useful. I think it's did we put it as the best Brad Pitt performance, right? If I, I didn't, so. I was yeah. wrong because I, so. it, I mean, and some of it is just watching like a true movie star performance, which we've talked about at length. We don't get as many of those anymore. Um, and this one is just like, wow. Holy shit, it's Brad Pitt. It has a nice relationship to Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, exactly. right? Because it's the stillness and the cool and the reserve, but there's something underneath that you're like, is there something really wrong with this guy? Is he really angry? Or is it just, you know, is it like the jockishness mm -hmm. that Pitt brings to it? Um, what, an, what an amazing yeah. movie that is. And the other thing I would say, it's just there is an emerging theme of just people against the system. And that obviously becomes more and more resonant as this decade goes on. But Moneyball is a 2011 movie, and it's starting to identify like a major theme that is like in a non-political way, but at the same time is it's like such it a perfect the future. this decade sports movie. Too. Exactly. Yeah. Every story that sort of matters about this decade is about, uh, and for as much as you may like loathe or love these storylines, is about people finding an edge and mm -hmm. figuring out how to beat the system at its own game.
Chris, Arrival is your number four, right? Can I just do Denis Villeneuve's Decade of real course. quick? On Sundays. 2013, he makes two movies, Prisoner and Enemy. Prisoner's an enemy. I love Enemy. I fucking love Enemy. And enemy? I also love Prisoners. Enemy rules. Which one is the one? The with spider the... one. Ugh. No and thanks. Prisoners is Hugh Jackman yeah, and Paul Dan. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, prisoners I find to be less successful, personally. So you, but you you forget Jake G with his neck tat. Yeah, he, he, it's <laughs> an interesting... What's the name? What's, you, uh, what's his detective name? Why are you shopping for kids' clothes? Is it Detective <laughs> Loki? <Boy>. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Jill Hall is a fucking lord. He is amazing. What a great decade for him. Uh, Sicario, Arrival, Blade Runner. It's not... It's, fucking great decade for yeah, a director yeah. and he does he basically does it on his own terms I mean he now is getting sucked into franchises and he'll either come out of Dune on the other side as like the new Spielberg or he'll he'll be whatever it is but man like I it's hard to get better than the Prisoner's Enemy Sicario Arrival run I think an interesting thing about that too three years Arrival is his I think it's his only movie out of that bunch to not be shot by Deacons mm-hmm. And the Roger Deakins effect, I think it'll be interesting to watch at the 1917 thing, how much credit Deakins gets versus Sam Mendes. And you could have made the case that Villeneuve, oh, you know, a uh, foreign filmmaker come to America, hires basically the most gifted director of photography that's living and letting that person create the visual language for your movies. But then he works with Bradford Young, a, a young, much younger DP and creates something that is like really challenging visually in a ride. I would also argue like understands human moments maybe in a way mm. that Deacons doesn't, which is Deacons is very, is is a lovely, lovely uh, uh, visual artist, but sometimes is not the most intimate one. That's right. My number four is Whiplash. Um, here's my case for Whiplash. I just definitely spent the last 10 years of my life being way too obsessed with my job and to destructive effects. And I feel like this is a, cautionary tale brilliantly told it's also about domineering people and the people you encounter in your life who are too hard on you and what you sacrifice for the things that you love etc cetera, etc cetera. but it is primarily about someone who got way too inside their own head about who they should be and why and i think it's a it's a very graceful metaphor for film directors it's also a very graceful metaphor for just about anybody on the internet everybody on the internet self-styling themselves over the last 10 years should watch Whiplash and be careful not to um, get into a vicious car wreck because you've pushed yourself too far to the limit. Uh, Obviously, Damien Chazelle, you know, announces himself as like Mm -hmm. one of the three or four biggest talents in movie making. It'll be very interesting to see where his career goes, I think, to go to the super duper highs of La La Land and then sink down with some of the disappointment and frustration of First Man and the aftermath of that. His next decade, I think a lot of people in the movie business view him as like, is he our Spielberg or something like that? Does he have the ability to make things like that? I think he's a little too idiosyncratic to be that big of a movie, a movie, a movie maker. Um, and His La La tastes Land are a little just, bit more old-fashioned. Yeah, probably. yeah. And he's now making a movie about old Hollywood next with Emma Stone, which will be interesting to see. Whiplash just feels like one of those lightning in a bottle movies where for whatever reason, the right producers came on board. Jason Blum decided to put money behind it, even though it's not like any movie Jason Blum ever produces. And... This guy made a full-length film out of his Sundance short and hit something that was very, very resonant for me. That's Probably the iconic scene of the decade. Are you rushing, rushing or dragging? dragging. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And also, one of the first meme movies. Oh, yeah. I feel like J.K. Simmons and his character, obviously his performance is amazing, but the, the rushing or dragging is like a bit online. 
Yeah. What came dark before night. that? Dark they, dark night. They got dark. They got dark heats night. out there. Yeah. Okay. And here we go. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> number three, Amanda. Uh, my number three is Parasite. Which, Damn. Yeah. Which I as this is my which I'm counting as a horror movie. When I, that's this is what I was alluding to. I I think we talked about how this decade spans. Uh, Two political moments. I mean, several political moments, but two distinct eras. And this is the first real piece of, it's not even post-Trump art. I'm aware that it is was made in South Korea and is about a South Korean family, but to this moment of nationalism and capitalism and um, despair and anxiety and anger that we are in, I think this this will be the movie that I remember from this moment. It's an amazing movie. That I thought about putting it on. Yeah. I don't. I couldn't put. I just didn't feel like I could put two 2019 movies on the mm-hmm. list because, for fear of recency bias. But yeah. you know, obviously, a, a marvelous, fantastic movie that we're probably going to be talking about a lot more yes. in the next two months. Chris, number three, Lady Bird. This is my number two. Yeah, uh, probably the best experience I had watching a movie. Um, like you know, you have like a couple dozen of them in your life if you're lucky where you just the lights go down and then and like for two hours you feel like you're floating mm-hmm. um just felt like it was the story she was born to tell and she told it it's hard to like even put it into words like how beautiful this movie is and how funny this movie is and how affecting it is and then also like that real crackle you feel when you're like oh man like Greta Gerwig's gonna make movies for 20 years and Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet are going to be in movies for 30 or 40 years. Like, we're just going to see, like, this is, like, the first peek into this beautiful start of something. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, like, it would be a good partner movie with Whiplash. I think in some ways it's, like, uh, slightly less dark, but a lot about, like, construction of self and construction of self uh, through culture and through passions and through family or lack thereof. And, yeah, I just... I can't say enough great things about that. I feel like I always end these like top fives by like trying to put like a superlative at the end, but it's just Lady Bird. No, I have written down a perfect movie question mark, which yeah. I, I think it is. Yeah. And and part of it, as Chris said, is that it's, it is so specific to Greta Gerwig and you're watching this and you not only know, oh, I'm going to be watching Greta Gerwig movies for 20 or 25 years, but you know what a Greta Gerwig movie sure. is. Like you have a sense of the tone and the interests and the, the way the characters speak and the things that... Um, she's going to examine again and again. So it's both so specific to her, and it's a it's a tremendous mother daughter movie. Yeah. And I I don't I can't There's think like of that many mother daughter movies, which yeah. we know why because you know they don't let that many daughters make movies. But I it it is both a tremendous and really moving evocation of that relationship, and I think is also pretty universal. In, think about how many things it's about. Yeah. But it's not like about it and like and this is not a shot at one of my favorite storytellers, but it's not like David Simon where it's like, it's about institutions. It's just like, no, it's like, you know, like all the stuff that's in there about religion and sexuality and art and, you know, class and and, and the wrong side that there's literally the the wrong side of the tracks. Yeah. Yeah, But it's just all told through this very compact story. I love it. I love Lady Bird. Is it on your list? It's not on my list. I had a strong feeling that Amanda would be coming through. Yeah. And then you dropped the bag. And so we're all set on Lady Bird. Okay. so where are we at? Number three. Number three for you? I was Lady that's Lady Bird, and that's number two for you. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So number three for me is Inside Lewin Davis. Speaking of movies to pair with Whiplash, maybe. Um, the Coen Brothers. Very important to me. Mm-hmm. Very interesting decade from the Coen Brothers. Here are the four Coen Brothers movies from the 2010s. True Grit, a fine movie. A remake, a fun romp. Oscar winner. 
Oscar winner, but and a very um, successful, very financially successful yeah. movie. Maybe not in the top ten of the Coen Brothers films. Inside Lewin Davis in 2013, Hail Caesar, which I love, but is probably lesser Coens, and The Ballad of Buster Scruggs, which I also love, but is probably lesser Coens. I think Inside Lewin Davis is really the only, the first movie they've made since A Serious Man that is in the canon. And it's in the canon because it's similarly like a lot of the best stuff on my list, including Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a love letter to a time that the filmmakers are obsessed with, which is this like New York folk scene in the early 60s. And it's also a love letter to the people who don't make it, who don't got it, who are like close, who are really close to having it. But I don't see a lot of money here that sort of vicious blade that F. Murray Abraham wields at the end of the movie after he watches Lewin Davis perform this very sincere song uh, as we after going on this almost Greek tragic journey. Yeah, Odyssean sort of, yeah. Yes, uh, is kind of like astoundingly devastating to me and such a sad and weird evocation of trying so hard to resonate and knowing that you're not quite there. And then obviously the movie ends with Lewin Davis getting a good look at what he wants to be, which is Bob Dylan playing, you know, at the gaslight or whatever and taking over the American consciousness, the, the popular culture of the world. And the, the, the Coens are not usually that sort of sentimental. They're usually a lot more arch. And I think they could only really tell a movie like this through the eyes of a Lewin Davis. But it features some of the best music that you'll find in a movie in the last 15 years. An extraordinary Oscar Isaac performance that's like, now quite underrated mm-hmm. um and a sense of um a sense of like deadness you'd think that early the early 1960s would be like jazzy and poppin and fun but everybody there in that time it's John of, Goodman passing out in the yeah bathroom. it's kind yeah. of gray and damp and Carrie Mulligan is furious at Davis and you know Garrett Hedlund is a dirtbag yeah and everybody is just kind of a miscreant in the movie and which is very true to the cones obviously but it is not like a romanticization of that time. I feel like part of it was that that it's got a absolutely astonishing trailer and people were really like this is going to be an incredible movie about 60s and folk music and he's a genius and the, and it's also got like a great romantic screwball comedy in the middle of it and it was just like not that at all. Yeah, and it's like artists have to go to their sister's house to pick up their belongings because they don't have anywhere to live. You know, like people artists are broke. And they're trying really hard to get people to hear what they have to say, but most people just don't give a shit. And a lot of them are pricks. Yeah, completely. Yeah. I have a vivid memory of seeing this movie in Christmas 2013, and I believe it was the first year that my now husband had come to Atlanta to spend Christmas with my family, and we see a movie with my father on Christmas night. And I saw it having seen the trailer and being like, you know, all these, it's going to be a fun 60s movie. And sort of had a slightly more muted reaction. And my father and my husband both loved it. And they were talking about it in the car home. And my dad just announced, it's like, well, Amanda doesn't like movies where men don't talk very much. So her her opinion doesn't count. (laughs) And that indictment has stayed with me to this day. Yeah. I mean, that's an accurate (laughs) description of the film. Um, I don't know if it's an accurate description of you. But I don't know, but it gets to the, it, that tone. It's it is reserved. It and, absolutely is. It's kind of a comedy. It's as close yeah. as I have to a comedy on my list. But it is it is a bleak, bleak, bleak movie. Yeah. Uh, in the best way possible. So number two, you've already shared is Lady Bird. Yes. Number anything else you need to say about Lady Bird? No, I feel like Chris and I just like shared our happy feelings for a while about Lady Bird. Great movie. Yeah. A plus. Cr, your number two, Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Uh. So I would not have put this on the movie on this list 
until recently. Uh, I rewatched it recently. And I think that uh, I was ready to leave this movie back in 2012 and just kind of be like, it produced some some great gifts and it was like an excellent comedy and a very demanding watch because it's so long. And then I rewatched it recently and I was like, oh, this movie like explains America uh, <laughs> and how fucked we are. And it's crazy the debate around this movie. It seems so wrong now to be like, are we celebrating these guys? And does Martin Scorsese think all this behavior is cool? And we spent like a solid six months debating that. It is definitely the funniest movie of the decade. Um, and that is in and of itself a tragedy. <laughs> that, 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 um, but you kind of think about when you look around not only our business, but the state of the country right now. And you think like in 50 years, are we going to look back and be like, we completely like just ransacked like what we had here and just completely just sold ourselves. And this is, that's what this movie's about. It's about the people who are buying us. And it, it's so fucking good. It is so electric. It's also like, almost like in terms of, ver- in terms of filmmaking, like he kind of outdoes himself. There's not any dead moment of this movie that doesn't have something where a uh, camera's flying by and someone smokes crack and then it goes into slow-mo and a marching band walks out. I mean, we've talked about this a lot recently because of so much Scorsese stuff, but this movie is just phenomenal. If you're a big fan of this movie, I encourage you to keep an eye on the Ringer Podcast Network in the near future. Um, not a perfect movie, and but perfect in its imperfections. I think the fact that it has been so what I would say is misunderstood in the years since, as you, as you indicated, Chris, is part of what makes me like it more. It's part of what makes, it's the, the subtlety of the, the farce and the satire is so effective to me now and so evident as Chris, as you're saying, that 2019 feels so much, it feels so much more resonant that it makes it simultaneously more devastating and more fun. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that they were so perceptive about the worst kinds of people in our society and also made that we're unafraid to make those people joyful. Yeah. Because that actually is what's going on. You know, these people who are doing these things, they're not, they're not twisting their mustache and thinking about taking over the world and torturing people. They're like, what I need to do is feel good all the time. Yeah. And they're literally like, once you feel this way, how would you ever possibly feel any other way? If you get this rich and you do this much Coke and you have this kind of life, how could you possibly ever go back. And that's what a lot of Martin Scorsese movies are about. That's They're the about heart of destruction. Chasing this un- impossible feeling. And uh, yeah, it's it's just, it's sort of wild to think about like these movies coming out in 12. I, I, I don't, when, when a big short come out? 13? I think it's 15. 15. 15? Yeah. yeah. And kind of feeling like, wow, we really got out from under that. Yeah. These are capstone movies. Let's just put a, put this one at, you know, the world spins forward. And that was obviously, they were more like canaries in the coal mine. My number two is the master, which Chris mentioned. Um, I don't. I it's I, it, it beguiling was the word that you used, and I I would I would echo it. It's a little hard for me to understand at this point what I like about it. I think it is the most mesmeric movie on the list. It's not something that I fully understand either, as you indicated, Chris. But it is the the movie that holds my attention most clearly, and I think all of the drapery around it, all of the Scientology story and. L. Ron Hubbard, all of that stuff is kind of lost the time to me. Like, I'm not thinking about any of that stuff when I watch the movie now. What I watch is from the window to the wall and the kind of almost like... Don't um, blink. Yeah, there's there's something like um, metronomic about it. There's something rhythmic about it. And the, the way that the dialogue is written and the way that it's delivered, especially by the two leads, is trance-like. 
And that is the purpose of the movie. It's to kind of like let it wash over you like those waves that you keep coming back to over and over again, that vision of the the rush behind the boat. And it's sort of like how things can take over your mind. And that's really what the people who are being seduced into this practice Mm -hmm. do. And that's what movies do to me. They just, Mm -hmm. they wash over me over and over and over again. And they kind of take me away for good and for bad. Number one, (laughs) Amanda is just... Being very polite about it. No, I, I, I knew that you would both have the master. I, I, it's a great movie. Uh, I assume we all agree on number one. Yeah, yeah. we do. Uh, it's your pod. It's, it's, Go it's, for it, man. It's Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Okay. Yes! Yes! <laughs> we did it! Thanos! <laughs> I am inevitable. <laughs> no, it's okay. The Social Network. The Social Network is the best movie of the decade, and it's not close. Yeah. Not even close. It, it's reassuring in a way that this this was easy. I knew that I would have this to to come back to. Would you like to vamp first? Well, we were talking about Ladybird being a perfect movie, and I think that the Social Network is also in a lot of way it is also a perfect movie. But then it's a a perfect movie that defines an era and kind of predicts everything that comes on a like international level. And also on a really human level, uh, both of how Facebook literally changes our entire world and democracy and and all the things that animate the rest of the movies that we just discussed on this list, but is also about one guy uh, trying to get inside and trying to find a way uh, to connect with people and creating different ways to do that. And is is what he created helping him or us connect? Mm-hmm. I don't know. Outlook, not good. In a, in a way, this movie articulates the kind of thing I was trying to say with my idiotic drive take, which was just that <laughs> it, it is about the turning of a page. It is about like when everybody who's kind of like in their mid-30s on is like, I don't understand how the world works anyway anymore. Like, this is why. Yeah. Or the things that this movie is about is why. The things about a guy in a room saying like, well, I know there's like these ideas about privacy or these, like, these ideas about like our inner self versus our outer self. But what if I just took those away? And would people be able to turn away from that? Would people be able to resist that for to, to hold on to like any kind of societal norms? And um, it doesn't hurt that this movie is just like as entertaining and professionally made as you can make a film, you know? And it's it's it, the idea. I think Sorkin and Fincher. It's like it, I'm so glad that they haven't done anything else. You know what I mean? It's like almost like that's the perfect encapsulation of the two of them. I'm sure they will at some point. You know. Do you think that the, mo- the the sequel should happen? Do you think the next 10 years should happen? With those filmmakers and that cast? Has that been talked about? I don't know. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, I would watch it. You know, like, I would watch the shit out of that. <laughs> it's like, I would not say it's no to that. Would watch it. I would not say no to that. I don't know what it would be about. You, you watched know? every episode of The Morning Show. Would I would they? hope you would watch it. <laughs> yeah. Please would, respect The Morning yeah. Show. Would it be about the election? What would you make it about? Would you make it about 2016? I would make it about what happens when a t- like a tech company truly rises to power. Um, this is the this this movie is um is essentially a diagnostic. It's a it's an origin story. It's why did this happen and where did it go wrong? But it doesn't totally reflect the strength that Facebook created. You know, if you look at the numbers that they used to promote the movie, what was the you, was, was it five hundred million? Three, yeah, five hundred you know, million. It's cooler yeah. than a million dollars is a billion dollars. Right. Which obviously they're worth billions, billions and of, billions of dollars now, and they have more than billions of users. And 
what we saw was actually quite quaint relative to what it has become. Now, that's in some ways harder to tell because it's less about people. And someone like Mark Zuckerberg has become very shaded. And what we see from him in the world is a little bit difficult to interpret. And he's more of a celebrity in a way now than he is some kid wearing flip-flops in Harvard, demeaning people with, you know, face mash or whatever the early iterations of the company were. That being said, and maybe this is foolish, but I, I trust Aaron Sorkin to kind of weigh the power of, of the moment and figure out how to continue to tell the story. I would, I would watch it for sure. Um, the thing that I don't, the reason that I love the movie so much is because it feels impossible now. The idea of those two people coming together for a major studio to tell something that is this risky mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they stretch the limits of truth in the story. Sorkin has been very straightforward about how he doesn't care that there's not total fealty to the truth mm-hmm. in order to make a great film. And the fact that it cost as much money as it did without stars. It doesn't really have movie stars in it. It's still like a hugely budgeted movie made by Sony nine years ago. Just is very unlikely. You know, there's a lot of talk about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of being a last bastion for this kind of movie. That movie has Brad Pitt and Leonardo DiCaprio in it and Margot Robbie in it, you know? And it's Quentin, who is, you know, a brand unto himself. David Fincher is not a brand. He's beloved by this podcast and many other people. (laughs) He's a brand to you. He he is. Um, But it's not the same thing. David Fincher movies aren't necessarily events. And where his career has gone after this is kind of fascinating too. He basically makes two more films and then he moves on to Netflix. Mm-hmm. and make series television for Netflix, which I, I like the series television he made, but it's pretty crushing to me. It's odd, but I think that he would probably say, I mean, I'm sure he likes to the, the fact that he has 10 hours to make something and he has he can mm-hmm. oversee stuff rather than have to be like, you know, getting all the insert shots in Zodiac. Uh, not that like he wouldn't do that, but I just mean, I'm sure he enjoys like being able to oversee 10 hours of stuff. But you're right. I just don't, I don't know who would underwrite this. And if they did, I don't know at what price point. Part of what makes this movie so appealing, though, is it's it is so economic. It's a two hour and one minute movie, right? And you isn't know? it like a one hundred and sixty page script though that they just read really fast? Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, sure, but at the end of the day, it's just about like he had one bad, you know, it's one intimate experience that explains the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I I think it would be hard to find a single personal experience that can explain like all of Facebook now, Mm -hmm. you know, we've just, there's so many people involved in Facebook now, that would be a difficulty. The other thing, and this is like really depressing, sorry, but the difference between 2010 and now is that in 2010, it, it meant, this is not entirely factually true. And, and we knew that, um, but people do receive this as a story about Facebook and Mm -hmm. they think they understand something more about this entity that controls a large portion of our lives. But people are willing to take a movie at face value in 2010 and people are not willing to take anything. Well, think about how that's 2019 because because of of Facebook, Facebook. (laughs) literally because of Facebook. The dark side of that trailer is like, I'm, I miss like the person typing, like, where are you? Mm -hmm. It's like, there's like a little bit of ennui to the behavior of Facebook, like where it's like people are spending maybe a little too much time on it. Right. You know, or looking for connections that aren't there. Right. Think about what, yeah, if they if they did that trailer today, it would be like a meme of Trump holding an eagle with Jesus. like a bare-chested Putin next to him and be like, vote for this person. Right. There's so much about it too that is perfectly calibrated. First time Trent Reznor and Atticus mm-hmm. uh, Ross do a, do a score. They win uh, best score for, for this. I think it is so- Sorkin needs someone to rein him 
at times. Yes. And I feel like you can feel Fincher, that you can feel the push-pull between them. And that tension is really useful for both of them. I think some David Fincher movies run the risk of, even though they're active, being a little bit inert. If you watch The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, it's kind of like, what is anyone's motivation here? Who are, what are these people doing and why? Mm-hmm. You never feel that in the social network. Every scene, you're on the tips of your toes, leaning in, mm-hmm. trying to figure out where it's going it's next. It's crackling, the yeah. whole thing. Which is so unusual for a docudrama about a bunch of college kids. I mean, that's really what the We're movie is. Coding, again, it's more spreadsheets and and yeah. people, there. this scene when they're literally building Facebook and which is just him blogging, literally. In 2010, they made blogging interesting, but it's because it's interspersed the with the blog, <laughs> but it's interspersed with all of the finals clubs and the, the, the tension between what he's doing and what he's trying to do is just so like perfectly expressed. Yeah. The world gets to meet Army Hammer. I, I mean, I, I think that I showed restraint in not yelling Army Hammer when you were talking about the lack of movie stars in this film or just yelling Army Hammer. Yeah. He's it, wonderful. I think I, it's the best ever use of Justin Timberlake. It seems more self-aware of Justin Timberlake than Justin Timberlake himself. Mm-hmm. I think there's a case for it as the most overlooked lead performance in a movie of the last 10 years in it's Eisenberg. Like Dustin yeah. Hoffman good. It is unbelievable yeah. and if this if this were 1978 it is the kind of performance people yeah. would be like well this is obviously an Oscar winner mm-hmm. and I think Eisenberg's nominated did not win and his career has been interesting since this he's obviously been in some very successful films and done a lot of interesting indie work but this feels like the moment you saw it it was iconic you know the, the scene of him after he goes into the um, he's egged on into going into the boardroom meeting wearing his robe and his slippers. And yeah, yeah, and yeah. he comes out and he's in that plaza. That is what I think of when I think of Eisenberg as an yeah. actor. You know, it's just such a perfect vision for him. What else about the social network? I just think it's, you guys have touched on it. It's it's different people bringing out the best in each other because of that, just like that perfect timing of the moment that they found each other. It's hard to overstate also just how entertaining this movie is. Like I was thinking about the pacing of it and it just never drags. There's never really a moment where you're like, God, why are we spending this much time on this? Or like, this scene is really, or why is this, this is a really boring montage. Like, I just feel like I could, I I, I could start it from any place. I could start it from the beginning. I, I've seen it 10 times now, uh, at least. It's just, and it, it just feels like the most modern, most decade summarizing movie. And also, honestly, Nobody's really directed a better movie since then. Like, in terms of, like, it's not like films look drastically different. Like, I feel, feel like movies are still trying to catch up with how good this movie looks. Yeah, it's 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 a perfect uh, combination of form and content. Yeah. You know, that's the thing. And that's the, that's the idea of Fincher and Sorkin coming together with great actors is you've got a person who knows how to perfectly shoot something. You've got a person who knows how to perfectly write something, at least in this kind of story. And it comes together to make the best movie of the decade. It's really watchable. We've said a lot of high-minded stuff. This movie rocks. It's yeah. just really fun to watch. And we can't underestimate that. I have one list general question. What's the worst movie you thought about putting in your top 10? Oh, my God. Hmm. Or what would have been, if not the worst, what would have been the most, like, a, like kind of third rail? Like, you're not sure if this would, like, fly. Like, it would be, it would, you have to do a lot of explaining. That's such an interesting question. Because it really gets to the heart of list making as a as a philosophical pursuit. I think the movie that I had a hard time cutting because nobody here was like, "What?" You know what I mean? Like nobody. We were not like 
just made anybody's picks. We just picked 30 movies. I mean, right. We had a lot of overlap. Yeah. But. I, I wanted to put Edge of Tomorrow on, which I don't think is, there's by no means is a bad movie. It's not even a disreputable movie. In fact, it's taken on like kind of a hipster, like this was actually an incredible movie yeah. kind right. of reputation. But the thing about Edge of Tomorrow is it's not really about anything. Like it doesn't oh, yeah. have any themes. There's no ideas in it. All the movie, I think every single movie we've listed, even Fast Five, if you're willing to go in on the like, it's all about family bullshit, has some sort of like, I don't, something meaningful in its subtext. Edge of Tomorrow is, is just a really high concept action thriller. And it's really, 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 really well done. It is like Hollywood movie making at its best. And I wanted to put it on and I, I chickened out and I put Fury Road on. I thought about putting Wonder Woman on just to piss off Bill Simmons. Bill, if you're still listening, this is a great test. I love you. Um, no, just kidding. I wouldn't have. But I, I did put that on a the, an honorable mention just in the sense of it's the only superhero movie that I even like remotely responded to in an entire decade of watching them. I feel like everything else was, I mean, Creed's really good. I wouldn't have been embarrassed putting Creed on there. Yeah. Uh, Suicide Squad for you, Chris? Zero Dark Thirty. Mm, oh, yeah. One of those. Which is like the, it's like the reverse of social network. Yeah. <laughs> Turns yeah. out we were wrong. They lied and it hurt people. Well, I mean, look, I think that that movie got really like twisted and turned around in the discourse around it. And it's really easy, easy to be like your MCM loves black sites, you know, when you, and, and just have like a shot of Jason Clark. Um, oh my your, God. Your MCM? Well, you know, like if you distill the discourse around a movie to film Twitter, it's mm -hmm. very easy to be like- To hate every movie? Overpraising or dismissive of a movie. And I think that this is a film that tried to capture history and collided with history in a very interesting way. Aside from that, and I hate, this is like not, this is not like a deeply held belief, but it's kind of hard to watch Zero Dark Thirty and not say like, that's a masterpiece of filmmaking um, in terms of how effective it is and and the way it like quickens your pulse and what it does and the, like some of the some of the shots and I think it ultimately ends on an incredibly hollow fucked up open-ended and empty note which I, I think has been somewhat misunderstood over the years they get people think it ends on a mission accomplished note and it doesn't but it's 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 definitely probably been the most sort of hotly debated one of the most hotly debated movies of the last 10 years I haven't revisited it in a while. Did you like it when it came out? I loved it when it came out. Yeah. It's obviously masterful filmmaking. I think that that's an interesting aspect of what we're doing here is the dialogue around a movie and what can happen to it when it's been put into the spin cycle. Right. And obviously a lot of what's been revealed about the storytelling in that movie is is suspicious at best um, and, and dangerous at worst. And that, that has been part of why people are significantly more out on it that mm -hmm. they they're politically out on it and then and so it takes away some of the achievement of sure. the filmmaking have you seen the report chris not yet it's a really interesting because it, it's like a direct counter to it right? it's a corrective it. it's yeah, a it corrective and there you know it, it zero dark 30 is being watched in the film at one point and to me it was a really interesting exercise in um what makes a, a true story and what makes a good movie mm -hmm. um, and and stakes and filmmaking and a lot of the things that you uh, pointed out. And I think both have strengths and both have really obvious uh, flaws yeah. in retrospect. Yeah. But I would recommend it. And nobody needs to see the true, 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 true-to-life version of The Social Network. I don't think that we would necessarily be right. better off for it mm -hmm. because ultimately the lesson of The Social Network is still true, even if they took some liberties with the truth. The same cannot, unfortunately, be said for Zero Dark Thirty. Guys, this was... Uh, very moving. Well done. Thank you for sharing the inner truth of your life at the movies in the last 10 years. I appreciate you both. You got it. Thanks, Sean. 
Thanks again to Amanda Dobbins and Chris Ryan. Please tune in to The Big Picture next week after Thanksgiving, where we'll be predicting some Golden Globe nominations. See you then. And purpose requires an understanding of intent. We need to find out, do they make conscious choices or is their motivation so instinctive that they don't understand a why question at all? Could you answer the next series of questions without blinking your eyes? Yes. Without fear and hesitation, answer as quickly as you can. Sure. With the millions of women that have had to give up their hopes, I'm not going to do it. This is bigger than me. This means more than me.